0: now from beyond our dimension this is the Jeff Mara podcast here's Jeff
1: my guest is Bill Dolan Emmy nominated TV director author and speaker in 1999 Bill had a near-death experience and today we're going to learn about it and more Bill thank you so much for giving me some of your time today and welcome
0: Oh, great to meet you, Jeffrey. I'm excited to, to share, meet your audience, and, and uh, I've enjoyed watching some of your programs. And I know this is a subject that a lot of people are interested in. I certainly was not as interested in it until it happened to me, and now a lot of people want to talk about it.
1: All right. Well, thank you for watching. And if you don't mind, let's just start on the day that yours happened. Okay. Well, I'll
0: even give you a tiny bit of context, because I, I think it's important about, I think the the place that we are mentally when we go into that space, because for me, you mentioned I was in television um, and uh, as a producer and a director. And the thing that was really exciting about that day, January 28th, 1999, was that I had worked on a documentary project and I was really excited because I was able to go to Nashville that day to sign a distribution deal. Um, with a company that was really excited about distributing our product and write me a check. And I thought, my gosh, this is fabulous. Um, Because I'd worked really hard in television. I thought, today, my life is going to change. You know, Today's going to be the big day. Because now in my my mind, it was, I'm going to collect this check. And then I'm going to get what they call mailbox money from residuals. And then I was going to work on passion projects from that point on, spend more time with my kids and my wife and I mean, truth be told, I was kind of an absentee father and husband leading up to that time because I was on the road so much. So this was going to be a big day for me. So I hopped on the plane out of Portland, Oregon, uh, with my best friend, Timothy Greenwich, who is one of the greatest gospel singers in the world, uh, audio engineer, and uh, uh, just love love the man, one of my best friends in the whole world. And we took off. And I flew all the time. And I mean, like at least once a week, maybe twice a week. So it was no big deal to sit in my little window seat and finally sit back and relax. But about 20 minutes in the flight, um, I started to feel kind of sick and I couldn't put my finger on it. And the more I thought about it, the more it bugged me because one, I'm never sick, ever, 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 ever sick. Um, But now I'm on a plane. And I start thinking, am I going to throw up? What's going to happen? And I remember feeling the sense that things were closing in on me. And it got so bad that I turned to Timothy and I said, Timothy, something's not right. And that's the last thing I said. And my eyes rolled back in my head, my arms flopped by my side, and my heart stopped. Now, Timothy, not being an expert in CPR, knew something was wrong, but he wasn't quite sure what was the right thing to do. So he just did what he instinctively felt he should do. And he started beating me on the chest. Now I'm sitting in the window seat, beating me on the chest and uh, nothing happens. Nothing happens. And he's a giant guy. I'm a small and little Irish guy. He's built like an NFL lineman. He picks me up. He puts me in the aisle and continues to do chest compressions. And he said he was at a point where he thought nothing's going to happen. He clenched his fist and he thought to himself, I'm about to break his ribs. And he he pulled back, I took a breath, resulted in an um, emergency landing. And ultimately, I was diagnosed with malignant neurocardiogenic syncope, which malignant, you can die from it. Neuro's brain, cardiac, heart syncope's out of sync. And um, they don't really know what causes it. Um, but uh, the only way they fix it is they put a pacemaker in your chest. So shortly after that, I ended up in the cardiac wing, and they put a pacemaker in my chest, and I'm actually on my third pacemaker now. I have a fresh scar where they just did surgery about three weeks ago to put in my third uh, pacemaker. So I have the newest, coolest unit in there. Now, um, I only see that from a context standpoint that, while Tim was having all this panic and, oh, my gosh, you know, death on a plane kind of thing, I had the most incredible experience anybody could ever have. Um, now, for context, because a lot of times people interpret things based upon their faith orientation. I grew up Catholic, you know, so full disclosure. I, um, so I had that faith orientation. Um, but when I crossed over, it was instantaneous. It wasn't going through a tube for me or anything like that. I didn't see pearly gates or golden bricks or hear angels singing, but it was almost instantaneously that I crossed from the threshold of a dimension of time and space to the dimension of eternity. And as I entered, it was like I was now in the presence of God. Now, I can't even tell you if I was in heaven. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I know I was in heaven. I can't tell you that. There were no signs, no road markings, but I knew who I was with. And it wasn't as if God was uh, like a person with, you know, hi, shake your hand or whatever. God was all consuming to me. I mean, all consuming. It's as if, He wasn't in front of me. He's like right here. And the presence of God not only consumed me, it's as if I could look to the left and it was eternal, and I could look to the right and it was eternal. But the most profound feeling I had was that I wasn't just in the presence of God. I was in the presence of pure love the embodiment of love, the author of love. And um, I share a little bit about my faith orientation because I can tell you as a little kid, um, um, my father was very angry and very abusive. And I used to echo in my head some of his words and the things he would say to me and about me. And I think a lot of us, superimpose our perceptions of the divine based upon the adult experiences we have. In my case, I thought if I ever met God, it wasn't going to be good. I was so convinced that if I did meet God, it was going to be one of those, you really screwed up. You really failed me. You disappointed me so much. And so even though we give lip service to you know, God or whatever like that. Deep down, I had no desire to really meet God. Um, Time met him. And all that changed. Um, and what was amazing is kind of like, when you remove the the dimension of time and space and the limitations through which we understand or see or experience and literally blow open the doors of what is beyond, it was kind of like, this is a bad way to say it, not like I felt it, but it's kind of like a laser beam went in my head. And I suddenly felt like I understood things that I understand. It's like I knew things I didn't know. And all the fears that I had about God, about life, just disappeared. And they transformed into this overwhelming sense of love and trust, and trust for the divine. Is so crazy amazing that, um, and I say this in my book, I wish everybody could die and then come back, because it would change how you live. Now, granted, there's a lot of us who've experienced death-like experiences. I think you can have death of your finances, death of a relationship, death of a lot of things. And we've all had to come back from tough, tough times. But when you experience the divine in the dimension of eternity, things just made sense for me so much so that I didn't think about time or coming back, other than the fact that, boom, um, I did come back. And coming back on that plane, uh, that experience was interesting because while I was in this perfect place of love and peace and trust, coming back was when I experienced the tunnel. And for me, the tunnel was every single scene of my life cut into puzzle pieces and then blown at me like a tunnel fan going. It just kept coming, coming, coming faster, faster, faster. And then I was back. Hmm. And I was overwhelmed at how loud and chaotic. The world was when i came back like this is nuts but then i recognized what i had experienced um needless to say it, it changed me totally changed me it changed in part from fear to trust um but it did not change one thing. And that was wanting to understand. So for several weeks, in fact, actually months after it happened, I did the thing. That I think a lot of people do like, why me? Why did I get to experience that? And why did I get to come back? And I also had, now I had to deal with, I had gone from the overwhelming divine eternal bliss to being back in this world. And you still have to pay your bills, do your job, be a dad, be a husband. None of those things go away. Um, and I had a lot of questions about what does this look like? And there were things about my life that I said, for example, my work, me traveling all the time, I can't do that anymore. Um, And part of that had to do with not only want to be a good dad and a good husband, but I came away with a recognition that the most important thing we have in this world, most important thing are relationships relationships. And part of it was this, this was kind of the revelation in my, my time in that space was, and this is really, really bad, you know, what you experience in that dimension is hard to kind of put into words over here. But I got this picture, like you know how the sun radiates and the sun's like of oh, this ball of radiant light that's sitting in the middle of our universe. Um, but yet if you were to go into space, like the picture behind you, Jeffrey, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're going to space, you'd be going, Gosh, it's crazy cold out here. And and But if you were to now come down to earth, you'd say, wow, it's warm down here. Well, why is it? Because the power and radiance of the sun is only manifest when it's in relationship with an object to receive that energy. And it's that that I felt like I got, that the idea of our relationship with God was about having relationships that the power, the overwhelming, omnipotent, unending love that God has only is manifest in relationship. That's why we're here, for that relationship. But what makes a perfect relationship is when that love is returned. And when that love is shared and what is just a radiant recipient turns into a radiant um, also source also. And so the idea of being able to think what my world could look like if one, I were to receive the love of God and I were to return that love of God. And what if I loved me? What if I stopped letting that echo chamber of hate, the echo chamber of saying, you're not good enough, you'll never do anything perfect. You're such a disappointment. And I started listening to the real voices that you're loved. You're loved more than you can ever imagine. And you're worthy to be loved. And yeah, you're in process. That's completely okay. Because in eternity, God doesn't love you for what you look like right now, God sees you in the fulfillment of your destiny. Because I also got this sense that everything that ever has happened or everything that will happen has already happened in eternity. Everything. And for that reason, I realized, I don't know, while Tim was shaking my chest, it might have felt like two, three, four minutes But yet I might've been in the presence of the divine for two, three million years. Don't know. Um, And how powerful it is if the love that I have, I can share with others. And with the love I have, I can give grace to others. With the love I have, I can give forgiveness to others. Um it just it just cha- it changed me. Now granted, I still you know <laughs> have have all kinds of issues like everybody else, but you know, I'm in process like everybody's in process. Um, but I know forever and ever and ever, I will always remember the power of God's love for me and that there's a God that doesn't just know you doesn't just like you, well, there's a God that's madly in love with you and cares about every hope, every dream, has shed every tear with you, um, felt every fear with you, but is your biggest cheerleader and loves you more than you can ever, ever imagine. And
1: that's what presses me on. Well, thank you for sharing that. You had an amazing way of telling your story and I appreciate it. Let's put it this way. You were in your seat, you started to feel terrible and then you blacked out. And then all of a sudden you were conscious. Did you make the realization that, okay, I must be dead? Or what was the realization going through your mind at that moment? You know, there wasn't, um, I was so overwhelmed
0: with the presence of God that any worry I had about where was I, what am I wearing, you know, is my hair combed, uh, is 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 what's the color of the road? None of those things, not even for a split second, um, made me have that that uh, a thought even remotely like that. Nothing like that. It was, oh, my God. It was real. It was like, oh. It's
1: like, oh, my God, it's God.
0: It's God. I could say that. Most of the times. like, well, that's kind of rude. No, that's exactly what it was.
1: <laughs> did God appear like just like a ball of light, or you were in an ocean of light, or did it look kind of like a lighted humanistic form being? It was very much like just being consumed by light.
0: Mm. Um, yeah, it wasn't ocean. It wasn't even a figure. It was literally consumed by, by light, absolutely consumed. Mm. At 360 degree consumed. However, I felt this very, 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 very personal presence right in front of me, like hmm. right there. Interesting. And it was like, um, so even though I looked and I was looking at the extension, I felt like myself looking like this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything was a consuming light.
1: Did you have any type of telepathic communication? Like, especially like if you thought a question, you immediately got the answer.
0: Not in English. There was nothing like it. it was a hundred one thousand percent spirit. It was all spirit. And it wasn't even me asking a question. It was literally pouring into me um experience and revelation. Mm. And so probably if I were to say, Who are you? I knew I didn't ask. Mm. Uh if I said, Are you ticked at me? <laughs> Know you like that? <laughs> I didn't have to ask that. You know, uh, uh, can I trust you? I'd have to ask that. Mm. Um, why did you create me? I didn't have to ask that. Mm. Um, what is my purpose? i didn't have to ask. It was just phew, so instantaneously. Um, you know, part of it is you think about it. I'm, What I experience, and I'm sure what others experience, if we experience that fully in just the physical dimension, I think our our brains would blow up. You know, you just, uh, like those monster movies where, you know, and he said, well, what happened? He got a true divine experience, you know. Um, But in the spirit dimension where you have the power of eternity and you're operating in that space. It's instant, instant clarity for me.
1: So no, none of that. It's almost kind of, would you say was like a download? You just total download, total download
0: as if, as if, um, like, You know, I come from the entertainment. It's just I have a bunch of bad examples from entertainment. But you know those scenes where someone has done something or they're inexperienced, and then the wise person, whoever playing the role, they simply look up and look you in the eyes. And you know, no words, just that look, you know it was like that on a grand scale.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned that we couldn't handle it in this realm. And I've often wondered the amount of love that you experienced over there, it's impossible for us to experience that here. Would you agree with that? I'm not sure it's impossible because I
0: think I get, I get the clear intention that's the desire of God's heart that we would experience, that we would know it and we would experience it and we would live it. Um, obviously in a physical dimension, there are limitations. Uh, for example, you know, the idea of saying, well, Jeffrey, you know, meeting you and hearing your heart and hearing this work that you do and sharing these stories and, um, you know, everything in me wants to give you a big hug and say, Jeffrey, great. This is so cool what you're doing. Um, but physics limits me from giving you that hug that's in my heart, of thanking you to the level that I could. So to that degree, you're just going to have to trust that it exists. Um, so physics plays a role in it. Um, and the other thing is I think distractions play a role in it that we spent so much time um, still struggling with the echoes in our head and uh, wrestling with the echoes of our media, which I know I contributed to. I mean, when I used to work in advertising, guess what my business really was? It was convincing you that your life is not complete complete unless you buy my stuff. Mm. And in fact, you're inadequate if you don't drive this car, live in this house, wear these clothes, smell like this, look like this, act like this, at any level, I'm selling you and pressing upon you 5,000 plus times a day that you are inadequate. Mm. And I think having to slog through that piece of it, working through our minds, robs us from being able to uh, love at that level. But I think it's not, it's still something we can aspire to.
1: Some of my guests would express it as experiencing the love that they've always yearned for. And when they come back, they're even in a state of depression because they're separate now from that love. Could you comment on that?
0: That's that's a tough one to hear because for me, yeah, I experienced love, but I one of the things I experienced was that this is a love that's always been there for me, always been there for me. And I think in many cases uh, we run from the divine and, and God and whatever experience we have in large part, because men have really screwed up religion. You know, we've done a lot of weird stuff and we teach a lot of weird stuff. And we do a lot of mean, hurtful stuff in the name of religion. And I think there's a part of us that believes, could there be a God that really loves me? Well, crud, not if he does this and he does this. So there's, there's always this doubt. And the idea of being able to really love or to feel love means you have to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to be hurt, maybe. And um, I think when um, we experience that love from God, you know, in that kind of experience, in the, in the eternal experience, um, you come back to a world that is still struggling with it. So for me, I know that love for me is still there. It's so there. And I feel it every day, and it fuels me. To love some kind, sometimes a very unlovable world. <laughs> you know, it's, there's a lot of crap going on. And um, to be able to look at, at even people that would want to hurt me um, and to be able to even love them because I know that hurting people hurt other people. And um, If we come back to the space of the physical world we live in and expect it to be or hope it'll be like what we experienced in an eternal dimension, yeah, there's no comparison, zero comparison. But that love is real and has not left. It has not left. And anybody who's in a place where they're going to go there, which all of us will, It's This sounds kind of trite, but, you know, at the end of the Super Bowls, they go, what are you doing? You just won the Super Bowl. You did that great thing. Like, I'm going to Disneyland. It doesn't matter how incredible your life is. Disneyland, in the form of a divine encounter that will blow your mind, is there. And for that reason, when someone tells me they have a terminal illness, you know, there's a part of me that secret goes kind of excited for them because I hate the process of death, not fun. Sorry about that. I hurt that you hurt, but oh, I'm so excited for you. So excited for you. And I know that what you're going to experience any pain you've ever had, any fear you've ever had, any doubt you've ever had about being loved or being worthy or having a purpose in your life will be fulfilled when you meet the author of creation and you realize how crazy loved you are. And I, I experienced that very personally uh, earlier this year when uh, the latter part of uh, last year, I moved in with my mother and uh she was in kidney failure and we realized it was getting she was on a downhill slide and i moved in with her and became her caregiver and it was i'm an only child and uh is so precious and so much of my time spent with her was not just getting her meals and helping her to the bathroom and getting her meds and you know stuff like that but talking With her about the hopeful sense of anticipation that was ahead for her and um i comforted her a little bit because sometimes it's hard for us to get over the fear of the unknown i get that no one i mean if you had to know would you rather know or not know everybody no i want to know usually and that was tough for her but i knew when she passed (laughs) I was happy for her. I was so happy for her. I treasured the moments we had together to let her know how incredible mother she was and how much I loved her. But I was probably even more excited about knowing that she was in the presence of God. And not like and and I say this respectfully. I know there's at funerals we love to say these things. Oh, they're in a better place. Mm -hmm. Come on. Most of us say that, not believing it. It's kind of BS stuff that we come up with to try to make ourselves feel good or come up with some line to say in an awkward moment. But I could say it for real. And uh, and I want people to know that, to really, really know that. And to, to the degree they can, it would be the desire of my heart, and I think desire of God's heart. that you wouldn't wait to reach out and try to know the God that loves you. Wherever you are in your spiritual walk, it doesn't have to get suddenly better when you die. It can get really better now.
1: Are you still Catholic? And if not, what type of religion, if at all, are you practicing now?
0: Technically, no. No. Uh, Because it was the faith I was raised in, I respect the intentions of of my parents to try to raise me in that, but there are things that uh, didn't align completely with where I was spiritually, even before my death. Um, I do, um, I guess for lack of better terms, I would call myself a follower of Jesus, because I came to the clear conclusion that Jesus is who he said he was. And so I pay really, really, really close attention and have done a lot of detailed work in trying to figure out what did Jesus say and what did Jesus do. And I try to be very, very, very cautious of those who try to interpret that and tell me what it means. Because I think there's been a whole lot of... Uh, of um, like I said, in religion, imperfect men, even with good intentions, um, cannot come close to really sharing the fat. I mean, the depth and the breadth of what God is. And sometimes the search that people have for um, meaning and answers and stuff, sometimes we make crap up. And I think that there's been a lot of stuff that's been made up and proposed and whatever. My faith has become so simple. I do believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Um, And I'm absolutely, thoroughly, uh, a thousand percent convinced that we on this dimension only know a fraction, a fraction of the breadth and depth of God. Um. And so for us to make a lot of assumptions and um, put God in box is uh, one of the things I've been trying to do in my own life is just blowing up that box to say relationships with God. And uh, and I'll say this, it makes it hard for me to go to church. You know, traditional people that would say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus or I'm Christian or something like that. I don't even like the term Christian. Um, um, and I say respectful to those that are Christians, I really do, but um, the culture of religion, um, I think sometimes masks the true nature and the love of God. And for that reason, um, um, I tick a lot of people off because I don't fit into the perfect box that people would like me to fit in.
1: Have you noticed that after your NDE that you had any abilities that you didn't have before?
0: Uh, I can play piano. No, just kidding.
1: (laughs) You you might.
0: No, I would say my single biggest change in me um, was my capacity to love others. My capacity to love and give grace to others. Because, um, boy, I will tell you, um, I, I really struggled with anger, in part, the way I grew up and things that I experienced. And um, I found myself being frustrated a lot. And part of it had to do with, you know, ultimately, frustration is a result of something happening that was not my plan. You know, I wasn't planning to hit my hammer, my thumb with a hammer. Mm-hmm. I wasn't planning to be late. I wasn't planning for you to show up to dinner. You know, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, 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 Jello instead of you know chocolate cake or whatever. And uh, ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So st- the stupidest thing make us frustrated, but it comes down to we walk into this world with all these expectations that this is the way it should go. And uh, I, I mentioned in my book that one of the things I've learned is I have totally released what I call my plan A and embraced plan B because I found when I let go of all my plan A's and I experienced what plan B is, I've learned that plan B stands for plan blessed. Mm-hmm. It's being in that place where you realize that, um, that I get to co-write the chapters of my life with God. I don't believe that God controls me or manipulates me or anything like that. God is just right by my side. And uh, uh, when I let go of my plan A, I still have a responsibility. It doesn't mean I just sit in an armchair and wait for blessings to flow all over me. It means I still have uh, work to do. But I have a work to do that says I'm going to be faithful to do what I feel called to do, but not be so consumed with the outcome that I find myself pounding my fist against the table. Instead, I found myself with an open hand saying, let's watch the miraculous unfold. And I would say I've witnessed it over and over and over and over and over again. It's so much a a better way to live. And it leaves me also with a sense of expectation. Um, I mean, now with this pacemaker thing that I have and this condition I have, my pacemaker goes off on the average about six times a day. And best of my knowledge, I still have this condition. So it means, man, when we get done with our time together and I crawl in bed tonight, I go in with a sense of gratitude. I was given another day today. And and if I wake up tomorrow morning, there's no guarantee that I will. But I take that first breath, it'll be with a sense of, of gratitude and expectation. Because I'm absolutely convinced that I did not earn my next breath. I don't deserve my next breath, that it is absolutely a gift. But if I've been now given that gift, how will I use that gift to be a blessing to others? So I go in today and say, how can I be a blessing? I go in tomorrow, how can I be a blessing? And I show up and literally watch the miraculous happen.
1: I believe that you mentioned earlier that the most important thing for us here on earth is relationships. Do you feel that your NDE inspired you to write your marketing book about relationships? Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. If I had, I mean, if I hadn't had that experience, you know, and I say this respectfully, because I don't know what the makeup of your audience is, Mm. you know, men, women, old, young, whatever. But I was kind of like the stereotypical guy in that it was like, we're going to go, we're going to go. I was like that kind of that driver kind of almost, you know, the kind of situation comedy that shows up and it's like, okay, where are we going to go? And as a director and a TV director, that was my thing. It was like, okay, we're going to kick Fanny and take names, you know? And even though I had a couple things happen, like, oh, okay, maybe I should be a better father a better husband. You know, I still was just like driving through and, I feel like it was, you know, for lack of a better term, it's like a two by four against the head to go. Wake up. You have been sucked into a vortex of how you believe and behave and not even knowing why. Now we're going to talk about why. And so it did give me that pause to reflect. And I did, I went back, you know, I was also a student of philosophy. So I'm, I'm a Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. I mean, all my humanities credits in college, even though I have a TV degree, also studying psychology. So I went back and I was reading everything and just like trying to re-engage. But I also went back and I read just um the, the four stories that document Jesus' life, because I want to know what did he do and what did he say? And then I went back and I even looked at the original uh, Gr- uh, Greek and Hebrew that uh, some of those elements were reading in and, and said, can I trust this? And it was in that, that I went, you know what? And this sounds very sacrilegious. I looked at, Jesus life not only as um, someone who an advocate for love an advocate for healing an advocate for caring an advocate for reaching out to people that are disadvantaged and persecuted you know and and isolated all these things that you see coming from this life but also saw the greatest marketing plan in history and I started reverse engineering this how did Jesus become one of the, if not the most popular person in the history of mankind? Was there something that took place here that I can learn from? And so I began diagramming it, and I diagrammed what he did with whom he spoke, everything. And then I went back and I started going back through history and archaeology has some incredible history and stuff that we hadn't learned, but for the last couple decades, archaeological digs right around where he grew up, that literally blew open my paradigm of who this Jesus was, who he really was. And not not just, you know, baby Jesus, you know, making, you know, stuff, you know, by by a crib somewhere, you know, it was like, wait a minute, there's way more here. When I started to reverse engineer it, I went, Oh my gosh, what Jesus has done is not just frame a marketing plan. He's framed how you create movements. And I thought about my clients because I've worked in the entertainment world and I've worked in the corporate world. So my gosh, this marketing plan looks like Apple. This marketing plan looks like Lady Gaga. This marketing plan looks like some of the most successful movements in the last 100 years. And it was from that that I then started applying it to my corporate clients. And I didn't tell them, oh, by the way, this is Jesus marketing. I figured it out because I died. And I didn't go into that. But I would start blocking out the plan. We have seven disciplines we're going to walk through to help your company get where it needs to go. If you're a nonprofit, we are got seven disciplines we're going to walk through to help your nonprofit grow and fulfill the purpose it's called to. If, and we did it. And guess what? It worked. And it worked over and over again. Um, and then I write in the book about how I was asked to do a real estate development over in Hawaii and market it. And kind of long story short, we did the seven disciplines. Same thing that Jesus would have done in that order. And we turned what would normally be some homes on a beach to a global movement. These homes became the Obama Winter White House. And this is where the Obama stayed. And the the homes that were just one spot on a beach turned into a global phenomenon that networks, newspapers around the world wrote about. And my client was like, wow, how'd you do that? It's like, just follow the seven disciplines. That's all I did. And that was the clincher. I eventually um, got to the point where I started just documenting it in more detail. And after my dad died, and I took a breath about that and recognized it, I've been given this gift of life. It's been almost 20 years. Um, I remembered when I walked out the door January 28th. And best I can remember, I might have said goodbye to the kids, you know, give a quick kiss to my wife at the airport, boom, blow it out, because I was always in a hurry. I couldn't remember the last time I said I love you at all. Even though I did. And I recognized I needed to write this down. To be a love letter to my family and the world. Not only the love that I have been given and want to share, but the love that God has for us. And something that's crazy practical talks about something really deep. And that is that uh, relationships are the expression of the greatest force in the universe, because only in relationship can love truly be expressed. And we don't have to do it when we die. We don't have to wait till we die. We don't have to wait till we say goodbye. We can do it every day. And we get to do it not at five o'clock when we get off work. We can do it while we're at work. We can be an expression of love and encouragement and hope every single day with every life we have the privilege of touching. And what a powerful life that is. If we stopped being consumed with transactions and thought how our life can be an instrument of transformation in the life of someone else, that, that, that was a driver behind the book.
1: Your book is called The Seven Disciplines of Relationship Marketing, but I feel pretty sure that you could apply those seven disciplines just into our own general relationships with each other. If so, can you give us some examples of how we can do that? Yeah, the
0: the um, the first the first discipline is really basic, but maybe the hardest, and that is the the principle of I call it the principle of mission, and it's spending that time with yourself and maybe with those that can speak into you to answer the question: What's your purpose? Why are you here? And when you go through that exercise in the book, I share some exercises that I use to get clarity about that. But from a business standpoint and even life standpoint, you say, well, okay, now how do I put that into action? And the thing that I saw about Jesus that was crazy is that uh, we're in the business world. We say we, you walk into a business and you see mission on the wall. Here's our mission, you know. Well, when you break it down the way Jesus did it, he came in this world, and it looks like he had a purpose. But, in fact, there was another book written about this by a gentleman by the name of Steve Scott that said, you know what? Jesus had 26 missions. 26 missions. And so the idea of saying, once you understand why you're here, instead of saying, my mission is to what, clean the kitchen or drink more coffee or whatever like that. What are the missions that you need to accomplish that will help you fulfill that purpose? You start breaking those things down. And then from there, a lot of people talk about goals and we have goal setting. We all applaud everybody with goals. What are your goals today? But a lot of goals are set because someone says, I'm supposed to set them. I'll tell you where goals get powerful is when your goals are a timeline attached to your missions. Because you can have purpose and now a series of missions to fulfill that, but now the goals put a timeline, hold you accountable, and and give you a sense of of what are the prerequisites I must do to fulfill that mission. So now instead of things getting kind of fuzzy, you can actually kind of break it down and go, now my goals have meaning because they're mission-driven and my missions are all purpose-driven. And of course, that leads to another thing, and that's vision. You always hear people talk about, what's your vision? And um, and one of the things I teach in the book is about, think about when you were a little kid, and if you're like me, you put together puzzles, and maybe during COVID, a whole bunch of us put together puzzles, but once the first thing you do when you, you put together, start to put together a puzzle is that you look at the cover of the box, and so... That's a lesson for us to what vision really does look like. Because we live in a world that is always throwing puzzle pieces at us. And everybody's saying, oh, you need this puzzle. You need this puzzle piece. When you start to understand your why and the missions, um, vision starts to manifest. And the important thing about vision is to literally see what does it look like. What does it really look like when you are living your purpose and fulfilling your missions? And you go through that exercise and guess what? The front of the puzzle box starts to manifest. And where that becomes so powerful is guess what? Now you can start looking for the pieces. And it could be that so many pieces of the things that are important for you are sitting right in front of you but maybe you ignored them or you didn't recognize their power. Maybe it's that corner piece that you've been waiting for. thats always been right there. And then when the world wants to offer you puzzle pieces and say, Jeffrey, well, you need to do this and you need to do this. You can look at it and go, you know what? Hold on. Thank you. But that puzzle piece does not go in my puzzle because I know the puzzle box that I'm building And to have the authority and the freedom that comes with that vision is life-changing. And of course, the other element of it is values. What are the things that really drive you and undergird how you want to live that life, how you want to build that puzzle, how you want to fulfill those missions, how you want to live that purpose? When I start laying those out, I saw those as things that that Jesus did, and even some of the great philosophers did, and many of the, the uh, people that we admire that we say, oh, they well, are successful, have done it some form. And what I encourage people to do, and I, I call it, for lack of a better term, I call it a mission manifesto. To be able to create a mission manifesto for yourself, so that whether you've had an NDE or not, right now, and I say this all confidence, If you got up this morning, you have a purpose, you have value, you have a powerful opportunity to make a profound impact in this world. Now, you may be in the preparation stage of it, kind of like the the butterfly example, you might be in the caterpillar stage, or you might be in the pupa stage, you know, where you're transforming. And by the way, that's an ugly process ugly mother ugly process but unlike the caterpillar we have to watch each other go through it and when we're going through it give each other grace we're in process and it's not pretty and sometimes it's really painful but at the other side of this is the fulfillment of that which we can be in our best in our in our best destiny what does that butterfly look like So forming that mission manifesto is a great way of creating a compass and then being able to give yourself grace and to give each other grace because it takes a while to build that puzzle. But when you do, there's nothing like it. And that's just one of the disciplines. So one of the disciplines and it's crazy hard. I won't lie to you. I won't sell you. Oh, look, it's really easy. No, it's, real hard, but it's probably one of the most profound life-changing exercises
1: anybody can do. Do you have anything that you're working on that you want us to know about?
0: You know, the biggest thing that I'm working on is is um, just trying to, to share the story. Um, I, I know that part of my purpose and the reason I came back is to let people know that they're loved. Let people know that they're loved more than they can imagine. There's a God that loves them. And, um, and they need to start loving themselves. Um, and when you get to that point where you give yourself grace, you can give others grace. Because I believe one life at a time, one life at a time that healing people can help hurt people. And hurt people can become healing people. And when we have more people going through healing instead of hurt people hurting other people, I believe there's there's a tipping point we can make in this world. Tipping point in our families and our communities. I mean, I think all of us can agree there's a lot of hurting people. There's a lot of angry people. And there's a lot of unloving people and a lot of folks that are unwilling to give grace um, and I think that's because a lot of people are in process, but if we can share the story, encourage others, um, and of course I can be a resource, um, I am looking at starting a workshop for those people that are in business and want to apply these principles. And so if anybody was interested in learning more, by all means, you know, the book is one method. Uh, The other is just to go to our, our, the website, the seven drm.com. It's the number seven, seven drm.com and, and connect with us. Um, I have a regular email that goes out monthly and just shares some of the things from the seven disciplines and, if you're one of those people that says, I want to apply to my business, we definitely can help you with that.
1: You gave us so many great messages today. And before we go, can you give us one last positive message?
0: One last positive message. Mm-hmm. One last positive message. I think I've said it a bunch of times, but I'm going to say it again. Um, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it around. <laughs> I'll go into a little detail here because I allude to the butterfly story. And I just wrote about it recently in the email just to give a little detail. You know, I think all of us want to have this resurrected butterfly life. Um, But there is a process. And when you look at the caterpillar stage, there is a stage of preparation And you might be in that stage of preparation. Don't compare yourself with butterflies. Know that you're a season of preparation, but you're destined to do great things. And when the time comes that you go through that transformation, there's three things that happen, okay? Three things that happen. The first thing that happens inside the cocoon is that the digestive juices that have been used to help this this caterpillar digest all the stuff turns in on itself and it begins digesting and dissolving away elements of the caterpillar that aren't necessary anymore. Let me tell you what some of those things are as a caterpillar. It's sees its identity in part. I mean, we're putting personality attributes on, on a, an animal that really doesn't have these, but keep in mind, it's a lot like us, is when you think about a caterpillar, what do you think about all their legs, right? You know, tons of legs and they're all doing their thing. Guess what gets dissolved away? Dissolved away. The very things that made up the identity, the physical manifestation of what this animal is, this insect is, um, just dissolved away. And you might be in that place where, man, I'm in transformation. I I know I'm going places. I'm destined to be that butterfly. I'm destined to fly. And you're in the phase where stuff is dissolving away. And you're going, no, 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 no. I'm saying what you don't need for the next chapter, let it go. The next part is, the organs of that caterpillar, then be able to transform into that, which can be a flying being. And maybe you're in that phase. You've lost a lot. You've had to say goodbye to maybe the things that you thought were your identity, but now you're experiencing transformation. And that's awkward. And that's hard because in that point of transformation, you're kind of questioning your identity Why am I here? I'm in this phase. I loved it when I could say, I'm this. I loved it when I could say, I'm that. It's like jobs. I'm a this, I'm a that. No one wants to say, I'm in transition. No one, but you might be. It's completely okay to be in that place because it's that transformation that's necessary to go to the third stage. And that's for you to start budding those things that never have existed in your life but we're destined to happen. And those are wings. Know that you might be in that stage. And at that point, embrace the new. Embrace the unfamiliar. Embrace that what you might not have seen, but embrace that what you are destined to do. Because I believe in all my heart that the seeds of greatness, the seeds of the divine have been birthed in you and through you. And you have nothing but incredible things ahead. The process is not fun. But the process is miraculous when you embrace it, endure it, and even share it with others. So that would be kind of my kind of my last thing. Cause I think that's a place where a lot of us are. Where a lot of us are. It's not always comfortable, but trust me, oh, it's incredible the outcome is incredible.
1: Well, that was a great message. Thank you for that, Bill. And thank you so much for being my guest. I really appreciate you and I wish you massive success in whatever you're doing.
0: Thank you, Jeffrey. It's a joy to meet you and a joy to meet your audience. I'm uh, honored to have been here today with you.
1: Likewise. All right. Um, Well, have a great evening. Thanks. You too. Mm
0: -hmm. Bye.